Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right, all right, all right. Brittany Hartley, how are you? I'm so good, Bill. How are you? Excellent. You told me, let me get rid of uh, that thing. Let me do this. Our names are on there twice. You told me uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, that you'd arranged for a special guest today. When you told me the topic, I got really excited. This I knew a- you would be. Yeah. In fact, I was talking to Cami Hurst, who was a guest of ours a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago, about what she's seeing the most in her therapy office, you know, the sex and family therapy. And she said, every man that comes into my office lately wants to talk about opening up their relationship and psychedelics. And those are the two things that people are just really interested in. And also it can be done really safely and can like also be train wrecks. And so I think this is just going to be a super good episode for if I think a lot of people in this audience are curious about psychedelics and then how can we do this where it's a little bit more safely safe and educated rather than maybe just doing things that maybe we would regret because half of us haven't even had a cup of coffee yet. So I think this will be a really good conversation. I'm, I'm super excited. Like this is a topic that, as you know, deeply interests me and I'll probably say a few more things on today's episode than I've ever said in the past about these things. And I really deeply, deeply with so much of my, my being believe these things to be tools and believe these things to be, um, something that can help us to develop a better approach to life and consciousness and all those kinds of things. You're a little bit more experienced in this space than, than I've been interested going into, but I will say the two experiences that I've had and one with the guest as my guide, um, deeply like life trans, you know, deeply transformational experiences in, in the top five, you know, transformational experiences of my life. But it was like four years of like, from, I was curious about it to finding a guide that I trusted and an experience in a place that I trusted um, before I was able to, because, you know, there's issues with it being so popular and like, there's like the cult thing that's going on and, in relation to it. And so it's, and then there's like legality issues. And so it was a long time between I'm curious to kind of curating a a really healthy experience. And so I I would love to just dive into how maybe to model that for other people, because it has been very helpful for me. And we come from a culture that has scared us, scared us to death about taking things like this. Now, now first off, and I don't want to go down a tangent, but the U.S. government wasn't completely honest with us years ago. And now the government is beginning little by little to give people more freedom to use these substances, such as Colorado. Even in Utah, you've got cannabis medically uh, available. And our culture that we came from in this religious system really scared us. And so folks often, you know, you're going to have this really negative connotation to them. But the reality is that if understood and used in proper proper set and setting, which I'm sure we'll talk about, 
these things can really help human beings process trauma and Mm -hmm. see their healthier sides of themselves and unhealthy sides and begin to do something with that information. Yeah. There are friends that I were, that I was with that said it felt like 10 years of therapy, you know, just in, in, in one session. Amen. So, but if, if you, you know, but if I were to tell most of my friends and family that this was something that was deeply transformational for me, it really sounds like, Hey, I'm a heroin addict now, you know, that's how it would be received. So we're going to talk about all of that. And I'm super excited to get to know this person uh, more deeply too. So we're going to call him Nick. Um, just because of the sensitivities around this around this topic, Nick from Oregon. And the interesting thing is that I know almost nothing about his story, but because we've shared some of these deep spaces together, I feel like he's my best friend. So oh, cool. I'm really excited to hear more of his story. Um, Let's bring him on. And how, yeah, and how he got into this. So introducing, this is Nick. Hi. Nick, how are you? Good. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Um, before Britt jumps into some questions, I, I would think the first thing we got to have you do is just talk about who you are and what you want to share about yourself so that we get a feel for your experience in this space and and maybe a little bit of your life. Absolutely. So um, yeah, I've been involved in this world for a really long time, the world of psychedelics and I, I guess what you would consider alternative lifestyles. Um I would I would almost say I was just born this way. I can't remember a time, even going back into my earliest memories, that I really uh, fit the culture. And um, I I started experimenting with all of this, uh, you know, as the result of traumas and different things. I, I started looking for methods of escape, and also, and equally, and maybe greater than that, just a deep intrigue and interest with what was behind the veil. I just felt like there was way more going on than what was being talked about in schools, churches, uh, even socially. Um, just kept feeling like there was far more to be understood and had out of this life. So I, I dove in pretty early on. Um, actually grew up in Texas, moved to the Northwest when I was 14. And, uh, you know, part of this was that I was born very rebellious and uh, I never liked or enjoyed the structures uh, that were being presented. And I kind of went out as a lone wolf and started experimenting. When you say, say like your system, what do you, what, what was your like faith religious upbringing? Like that felt, you know, like a straight jacket. What was that experience like in your early childhood? So when I moved to Idaho, uh, my mother married an LDS gentleman. And so I, you know, followed suit trying to get along and participate in the new life and, even prior to that, my family uh, mostly originates out of the Salt Lake, you know, Utah area. And so there's some really deep LDS roots there. Um, it skipped a couple of generations, but circled back around uh, for me when, when my mother was married. And though there were a lot of things that I really enjoyed about uh, the people of the church and the structure of it, there were far too many things that just, there was no good explanation for it. It was just, I felt more of a do as I say, not as I do kind of environment. Um, and again, I just felt like there there wasn't enough explanation. There was too much left up to the mystery and and faith, and just just believe it because we're saying it, and um, and there and it's in the books. And uh, I've always found myself needing a deeper explanation for everything, every school subject, um, every spiritual subject. I've always been a very spiritual person, 
I just never felt like I was getting the meat, you know, it was always very surface. And uh, yeah, so I just went looking, looking on my own. I, I kept hearing stories in every religion. I studied a lot of the religions and I was always getting the impression that these prophets and these people that had revelations and were given divine wisdom were doing things uh, that the average Joe wasn't doing, that it wasn't necessarily because they were the chosen one or any way perfect or anything, but they were participating in practices that allowed access to information and enlightenment. So I started sniffing around and this is where I ended up. (laughs) So how did that process go from like, I'm exploring this because I'm trying to escape to this is actually a spiritual path of awakening. How did that process kind of go for you? I'm curious. So it started out as just a pure rebellion, escapist, um, jumping the fence. Uh, It started out, I think, in a less than perfect fashion where it was very social, uh, very much recreational. Uh, having fun and just looking under all the stones, which I don't think is entirely bad, but I think there's a better way to enter this world. For me, it was just that I really disliked almost everything that was going on in my world, and I needed to find a space that I felt like I could thrive. That has eventually developed into a more solid spiritual path and collecting the tools from all over the world and all the religions and all the spiritual practices, seeing what resonates, seeing what speaks to me as truth, and then implementing those pieces in my life. I think all the religions have pieces of truth. And I think those pieces of truth are so powerful that you can build an entire religion off of one single shard of the crystal, so to speak, you know, but I want to collect all the shards. Yeah, man, I'll I'll tell you, Nick, um, I I started drinking when I was 12, started using cannabis when I was 14 years old. And then I, I, joined the religious faith and ended up stepping away from that only, you know, a few years ago. And uh, as I've ventured out and, and tried some of these things, what I, I found is that they did something inside my head that helped me to see the world in a new way. And I could see my own unhealthy behavior. I could see why communication fails in a conversation. Sometimes I could see why somebody was had a certain behavior, but it was based on some trauma they had inside. And I could really connect dots to that. And it really helped me see, you know, there's this thing in this space, that third eye kind of thing, but there really is an ability to see a different way than you could ever, ever access in, in the normal world with reality. And, and it might be accessible in other ways, meditation and the like, but um, these tools definitely get you to someplace different and, and it can be utilized as that a tool. Absolutely. And that's one thing I'm focusing on right now, actually, is a lot of times I describe psychedelics as uh, training wheels for those of us that are just completely unfamiliar with this level of consciousness. You can, and plenty of people do, access these levels of consciousness through meditations and breathing practices and grounding, all these different processes. But I think for me and people like me, this is a catapult, slingshot, training wheels type scenario type tool. It, uh, it really does wash away a lot of our programmed and constructed uh, consciousness that 
a lot of times it's very limiting. I've heard Sam Harris say before that, you know, meditation is like a hot air balloon. Like you'll get there, like you'll slowly get there. But psychedelics is like, you're, you're going to get on a rocket ship and you're going to go somewhere and it can help people who are skeptical or who have trauma or are not going to spend the next 20 years doing, you know, Wim Hof breathing and ice pools. Like I know you do um that you know maybe they're not they're just not gonna do that and so it can maybe just open up this is possible and then you can you know begin to do other spiritual practices to help you get there so that you don't need to be on it all the time to be in those places absolutely it's like the uh depending on what psychedelic you're you're using it can be a very enoch experience (laughs) can be shown a lot of things that will take a lot of processing But in essence, what I feel is being done is that rocket ship ride behind the veil. And once you've experienced that, you can learn to integrate those experiences into your daily third dimensional life. And you can also start implementing practices that are the longer way around, you know, the breathing and the meditating and all the things that go into that, even diet. I shouldn't say even, but especially diet. Um, I think they they can all be used together and the use should be structured. I, I've been reading a lot and there's a word that's jumped out at me and it's it's called creating a, a hedonic calendar. I believe uh, Stephen Kotler, the author and uh, one of the members of the Flow Genome Project uh, coined that. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's really easy, I think, to want to exist in this space all the time. So I think while you can take a rocket ship ride behind the veil, I think it's important to enter into this space with uh, respect and moderation and structure, or else you can end up what they call flow junkies. Um, And this can just become yet another religion, you know. Um, So anyway, yeah. Should we jump into a couple of these, Britt? Yeah, um, I think it would just, you know, we've already been using the phrase psychedelic. So I think it would be super interesting if you could just kind of list available conscious altering substances and just kind of as if, you know, for someone who has never had a cup of coffee yet, just what's kind of out there and what can you, what's the purpose and kind of what to expect for each Um just on the level of experience. And I would just, you know, yeah, just kind of list maybe some of your experiences with these psychedelics so we know kind of what we're talking about here. Okay. And maybe what I can do is is arrange them in, in an order of potency or impact or effect. You know, cannabis can be a, a psychedelic, uh, but typically it's it's uh, wading into the, into the ocean, you know, in the shallow end, a very gradual you know, experience very low impact. Although if you happen to have a really strong edible, it can be extremely impactful. So um, as far as smoking, it goes, that's kind of your, the shallow end kind of waiting out. If you're going from never having had a cup of coffee into tiptoeing into this, cannabis is a, is a pretty good way to open that door. Um, if that's not your thing, or if you've already experienced that, or you just don't want to start there, I would say a, a really great entry point is uh, psilocybin mushrooms and there's hundreds of types Um, but in general um, you know they all have similar effects but they'll they'll one will have more of an emotional impact the other's more of a physical impact another one will have more of a visual effect Um, dosing though it's a bit vague and inconsistent 
Um, getting your dosing right is, is fairly easy. It's not something you have to freak out or be really worried about ODing. There is no OD experience that I've witnessed or even heard of. Um, the worst I've heard is someone doing way too much and just having a really, really, you know, powerful experience. But in general, you know, a couple of grams of a, of a decent strain of, of mushrooms is a really great way to enter into these waters. Uh, I think on the same plane, uh, you have MDMA and ketamine, both of which I've done. Um, both of those have a little bit more uh, of a dosing necessity. You need to pay attention. Uh, ketamine is actually really, really safe. So, and they actually have it to where you can have those therapies in office with a doctor uh, to help integrate that experience and guide that experience. Um, obviously, it's available publicly too, but legalities kind of, you know, scare people away from that. MDMA, uh, same thing. You can go through a medical assisted, medically assisted or doctor assisted therapy with that. Of course, that is, you know, predominantly a, a street street drug, um, but they're having a lot of success with that, with treating uh, different mental disorders and chemical disorders and whatnot. I would put all of those three, mushrooms, ketamine, MDMA, in a similar uh, category. And then the deep end is uh, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, uh, a lot of times administered through ayahuasca, you know, South American uh, shamanistic practices. There are places here in the States, especially Seattle and Portland, uh, where you can acquire these things uh, legally. But yeah, that DMT is pretty much the uh, the most intense, but again, very safe uh, way to just dump, jump right into the deep end. I don't know that I would suggest starting there, but um, if you're adventurous and brave, you know, <laughs> if it would have been around and, and accessible when I was 16, I would have jumped right to it, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we start? Um, if I could just ask you maybe a little bit about cannabis. So you're seeing it sweep across the country. You, you've you got it uh, medically available, I think, at this point in more than half the states in the U.S., if not most. And recreationally, I think maybe about a third or so have got it that way, maybe up to half. And uh, as you're seeing people begin to kind of edge into that, as you pointed out, and I agree with you, it's maybe the softest way to get into this space. Um, I would note that people do feel different things. Some people have extreme paranoia, for instance. Some people um, feel very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think most people, and, and speak to this, Nick, but I think most people their body feels good. Things taste better. I mean, to go, to go, you know, eat some certain food, like it's just going to be the best time you've ever eaten that food. And <laughs> right. uh, just, to, you know, music sounds better. I, there's times where I put a set of headphones on and listen to music and I hear noises in the music that were there all along, but my brain never heard them until that moment. Yeah. Um, and it, and it helped me to be a better version of myself. I, I would take uh, it and be, much softer and more able to kind of sit with my own mistakes, my own unhealthiness. And when someone came in and maybe they came in a little too stern, I could hear it really softly and come back and respond really healthy. Your thoughts uh, on cannabis? Yeah. So I think we need to speak to the two primary, you know, uh, strains being sativa and indica. What I've learned over the years for myself and from what it sounds like, in talking with several other people about it, the paranoia, anxiety, things like that typically come from a really strong dose of a sativa. Um, sativa is the more social. So 
in my experience, if I'm going to use a sativa, it's going to be a daytime uh, environment, uh, probably outdoors, uh, social, you know, maybe a festival or, you know, just something that puts you around several people. But I am going to use, I might, I might take a couple of puffs off of a joint or a bowl or something because I have experienced, I did a dab of sativa once and it was horrid. (laughs) I had the worst panic attack, anxiety, just crawling out of my skin where I had to go and hide in my room and just be away from every kind of stimulation that there is. And uh, so I definitely didn't enjoy that. And so I've learned sativa, small doses, couple of puffs and uh, be social, up energy, and that's fine. Keep it at a couple puffs. Indica, on the other hand, that's where I'll get into the listening to music, eating, you know, the headphones, the solitary, introspective, calming, relaxing, sleep aid, washes away all the noise of the world, and uh, most of the time washes the noise out of my head. Um, So I think if you're looking to have a, a deeper experience with cannabis, uh, that I would suggest doing an indica or an indica dominant hybrid. Um, some people really love sativas, but I've noticed like these days with the dramatic increase in anxiety and depression, um, that I might steer people more toward indica. Yeah. And, and it, essentially three forms, right? You can take the actual original kind of flower stuff, smoke a joint, pack a bowl, or you can uh, dab, which is taking concentrates and burning that into like a vapor and then edibles, you know? And so if you're, you know, you can just eat a, a little candy and the, the downside of the edibles, it takes about an hour to kick in maybe 45 minutes. And, uh, whereas the other process of doing it, you're getting about 10 minutes in and you're going to start to feel it. Um, so you got to kind of plan ahead if that's the way you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you do have all those options. So if you're, it, the, the edible seems to last a little longer, four or five hours uh, in my experience. And uh, whereas if you're smoking it, you kind of have to revisit that every hour and a half or two hours. I've really, I've gotten into the, the edibles quite a bit. Um, I was a smoker uh, for a long time of cigarettes. I puff on cigars once in a while now and try to keep stuff out of my lungs, but I'll still, uh, you know, smoke on some flour uh, once in a while. But for the sake of health and whatnot, uh, I've really been getting into RSO, Rick Simpson oil, and um, and other edibles. You know, here in Oregon, there's an abundance of any kind of edible. You can imagine gummies and chocolates and whatnot. What I have noticed with edibles, though, is that uh, you got to be fairly cautious on how much you take because the effects seem to be greatly modified or <laughs> Uh, are heightened than just taking a couple of puffs. It's a little more difficult to regulate your dosing. I mean, in Oregon, they they give you five gram uh, dosings. That's the state law. Max dose per candy is five grams. Washington is 10. And I would say that, you know, even for a veteran uh, smoker like me, uh, 10, um, I should definitely plan on not going anywhere and just hanging out at the house or out in the woods, you know. But. Yeah, no. yeah. I, I'll Brit. Someday I'll tell you about the. Uh, and I think we're saying milligrams, right? I think is it. Yeah. The, yeah. So I, I'll tell you someday about my fishing trip on a hundred milligrams. And, uh, <laughs> that'll that'll that would be a fun story, but that would take up too much time. Were you, here. Were you actually fishing, or did were you imagining that you were fishing? <laughs> I will simply say I fished for hours. I didn't have a single bite, and it was the best fishing trip I'd ever done. <laughs> oh, that is so, so much. 
<laughs> I'm curious, Nick. So you have um, children, mm -hmm. and so I'm curious um, about you know. There's certain experiences that I would love my kids to have. Like I would, I would actually want my adult children to experience psilocybin. I feel like it was very healthy for me and very productive for me, very beautiful for me. Um, but if my 14 year old was drinking alcohol and smoking pot, I probably still wouldn't be a fan of that. <laughs> and so I'm curious about um, how you feel about the right time in your life to maybe do some of these things as far as brain development, as far as getting habits of escapism and all those things. Um, because I'm, I'm still pretty strict with myself and would be with my children. Um, and maybe some of that's just being a leftover Mormon, but some of that is just, you know, there are concerns for young brains. So how, how do you kind of address that with your own kids as far as this being a spiritual path, but when is the right time and age and development for this kind of spiritual path? I've told both of my children that they should wait. Uh, I'm not a big fan of alcohol, um, so I, I definitely try to deter the usage of that. I think it's far more destructive. Um, the ratio of benefit to destructive, you know, it's it's. I don't like it. But um, with cannabis, I also have asked that they wait uh, while they're still developing. You know, uh, I think there's a lot of, you know, there, well, scientifically, they're saying that there's tons of development that go on even up to 25 years old. But if we're going to use 18 as kind of a metric, um, I've talked mostly about my, my, about this with my oldest daughter who just became an adult, just trying to caution her that while all of these things, like many things have a benefit that you can easily find yourself using in a daily fashion, you know, multiple times a day. And you can create a dependency. It may not be a, you know, a physical, like a nicotine type dependency, but I do think that you can definitely end up leaning on cannabis as a crutch and it can end up for me, you know, I can get kind of lazy. You know, if I become a daily, you know, ritualistic smoker, I, I can get lazy and unmotivated. And, and, um, you know, so I do think that there's, you know, some negative associated with that. And I try to caution them, like, wait until you're 18 or older. And, uh, as, as, easy as it is to become a flow junkie, you know, or that, or a junkie for that headspace, you really have to monitor and, and, and exercise some discipline, you know? And again, it's different for everyone. I have a few friends that are insanely uh, successful, big business people, you know, CEOs, just, you know, the all American dream kind of people that use it every single day. And they say that if they don't, that they just spiral into these anxieties and depressions and overwhelming thoughts that they can't turn off. And I, I do think that's a rare scenario. So I, I caution my children, you know, if you decide to do this, you know, I would suggest not making it a daily practice. Um, so let's dive into anxiety and depression and PTSD, because I know that you study a lot of research, you're always reading something. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was one of the most surprising things about my first experience was I, I had the experience and it was super interesting. And I learned a lot about myself and blah, blah, blah. But then the next morning, I woke up and I texted the person whose house you're at. And I said, I feel sunshine in my brain. Why do I feel sunshine in my brain? And that's like the words that I, that's like the best that I could come up with. And it was really just 
I hadn't felt that free from depression since probably I was a young teenager, like a long time. Um, and it, tr it felt sunshiny. And that was like super, super shocking to me. I was surprised. And then I just wanted to go tell everybody about it. And everybody thought I was crazy. But uh, kind of dive into the research on what specifically like something like psilocybin is showing is, you know, is in terms of anxiety and depression and PTSD, because I know that you've read a lot about that. Yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> it is pretty fascinating, actually, um, how the psilocybin works. It creates a metabolite, uh, psilocin, and it it interacts with uh, your serotonin receptors, uh, like 5H2A, and uh, there's the GABAergic, uh, like these neurotransmitters and uh, and receptors that become activated. And we go into this experience with our program running, all the little pathways that have been established, all the hardwire. Though I don't believe in hardwire as a term, really, it is one that we can recognize. But we have our function. We have our program. I think they say by the time you're 35 that 95% of your behavior is habituated, right? And so what this does is if you, I heard it said like this once, if, if you look at a mountain and you see these areas where people have gone skiing, these thoughts are like the skiers, right? And they go down these paths and eventually they wear a groove in the snow and everyone Every one of these thoughts or persons are are traveling down those those pathways. And when you take psilocybin, it's like you either get new snow or the snow melts completely. There are no pathways anymore. Uh, you, you abandon your program. You step away from it. Along with that, um, the process of neurogenesis is activated. And so you're you're walking around trauma centers. You're walking around or melting down. Uh, old thought loops, and you'll start walking and dealing around these trauma areas and basically starting, creating a starting point for a reconstruction of self-programming. That's why I say too, it's, it is a tool. It's not the end all be all, but a tool. But um, I, I think that sunshine feeling is the redirection of energy uh, pathways, chemistries, that are able to either walk through or around trauma centers and reattach you to the chemistry of happiness. Yeah. I, I think what was interesting was like both, like you're saying, it was both of those together. It was that in the experience I was able to say and, and be honest about some deep truths that perhaps I was afraid of saying. And so now I'm having to uh, deal with that and be honest about that. But then the day after experiencing such like a sunshine in my brain feeling where now I have the motivation to actually go about doing the work around the truth that I had said in the trip, both of those together was just hugely transforming. So I had the energy to do something about it. And I know where I needed to go uh, because I could really name where I was stuck. And that was the thought loop where I was stuck. And now I have the energy and the awareness to kind of figure out what I'm going to do about it and go around it or get help or whatever I needed to do. And so it was both of those things together. It was it was the psychological space, but then it was also the physiological kind of energy and, you know, new day kind of feeling that yeah. both of those together were hugely transforming in a short amount of time, you know. Sometimes all you need is just a little bit of light to remember that there is some, you know, yeah. a little tiny candle a hundred yards away is better than nothing at all. And I think that's where some of my sunshine comes from is we get wrapped up in these thought loops, this broken record player that subconsciously plays in the back of our mind saying, 
you're limited, you're limited, you're limited, you're messed up, you're you're traumatized, you're broken, you're not good enough, blah, 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 blah. All the stories. And, yeah. And, yeah. and when you see that there's this little tiny glint of a pathway around that, that you might actually be able to reach a really high level of success in whatever you're interested in, that there's a pathway. When you start seeing that most of the time, the difference between a really happy person and a really miserable person is just a slight twisting of a chemical knob, so to speak, a radio channel that you're stuck between two channels, nothing but static and destructive chaos, just a little bit of a tweak of that knob and the music's loud and clear. I think just that little piece can be what really changes things for people. Yeah. We haven't talked about MDMA yet, and and I want to at some point here, but at least to note, as you're pointing out, both of you, um, the research shows that when somebody is given Molly or MDMA under uh, a therapeutic type session, they go into an office, they take it, a therapist kind of sits there and helps them process things. They were taking soldiers with PTSD, uh, and what they found when the research was done uh, immediately after the third, it was three different sessions. So three mm-hmm. different times you would take it. After the third session, there was a 43% of the folks who went into the study reported not having PTSD anymore. When they revisited all these folks one year later, 76% of these folks did not have PTSD. And if you understand for the, for the audience, if you understand PTSD, you can give people uh, tools to deal with it better. You can diminish it sort of, kind of, but you really can't get rid of it. And here, 76% of the folks involved in the study reported that they had no PTSD when it was done. That's that to me is amazing. It is. It is yeah. truly amazing. I've got uh, several friends that are you know, combat vets that later transitioned into uh, private military contractors, and they came home with some demons. You know, um, they were telling me that on the regular, they would find a gun in their mouth, just miserable. And they have, a handful of them have experienced the ketamine therapy and MDMA therapy. And that's the reports I'm getting back. Um, I've had my personal experience with MDMA. Um, and this is where I think set and setting and intent is important. I, you know, I'm, I'm a raver kid from the 90s. So my first experience with all that was desert parties, um, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll or techno. <laughs> and, um, and I didn't experience a lot of relief, long-term relief from PTSD and depression and anxiety, uh, all of which I've been diagnosed with. And that's where I started thinking, well, how, how are these guys able to achieve this? And that's what's kind of come out of those questions is, number one, the frequency. You talk about uh, three and four different you know, uh, treatments. The same thing happens with ketamine. Four to six treatments with ketamine on average is what it takes. And um, I think so you establish your intent, you know, and speak that, you know, I want to heal. I want to get past these traumas and uh, these disorders that are resulting from these traumas. And, um, and then having a specialist to help you integrate and kind of, you know, decipher the experience. And uh, I think there's a lot of little components. Um, like I say, coming from the recreational world as as my introduction, uh, I couldn't tell you that I really gained a, a long-term benefit. It felt amazing while I was doing it. And the unity that I felt with my my peers, my friends, the music, how much better the music felt, sounded, everything was just better. The love, 
you know, the, the feeling of love, you know, I mean, the oxytocin must be through the roof, you know, during all of that and the dopamine and all that's just got to be spiked. Right. Um, but long term, I still suffered, you know, so I do think there's something to walking into a structured environment with someone that will hold your hand and guide you and has the same intent as you do. I think that I think those two really should be paired. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's so true. Just for me, both of my experiences were in the moment. They were actually like not enjoyable. I was not feeling the love. Maybe it's because in my mind, I just I swim in really deep, dark philosophical waters. So both of my experiences were, I just cried. It didn't feel great. Yeah. But but I was able to say the things that I was really stuck at and afraid to say. And I was able to be with people who could hold me in that space. And I was able to at least feel like I could be loved even as I'm going through this play this thing. And then the next morning, you know, getting that boost in your brain after kind of going into that deep, dark place where I was stuck, being held with people and a guide who could hold me there. It was deeply transformative, even though in the moment it wasn't um, unicorns and rainbows for me. Oh, yeah. No, I, I experience uh, very similar to you, always in the deep end in my thought processes and always ruminating and overanalyzing and trying to use all this fancy logic to navigate life. And uh, I heard somebody say, your best thinking got you here. And they were speaking to my misery. <laughs> yeah. You can't, really, you can't think yourself out of a thought loop that you thought yourself into, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. And so what are, go ahead. Just to speak to your point, you know, some of these experiences while you're having them can seem terrifying and really sad and, but you are being broken open. To me, it's, you're panning for gold, you know, and all that black sand that accumulates with the gold, we can say that that's the negativity, that's the demons, that's the ugly and shaking that up, digging that up and putting it in the pan, it's not going to be fun sometimes. I'd say 99% of my experiences are a really good time, but some of them are very hard, very scary sometimes, very emotionally charged, lots of crying. And, and But like you say, on the other side of that, it's like, man, you know, we really had to dig that up and really look at it and yeah, really name I did, it. me too. Mm -hmm. Call it out, call it what it is, look at it and 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 start your walk past it. Yeah. That last one I did that with you, it was like a fear of absurdity and meaninglessness that I, I couldn't have verbalized before the trip, but then I could after, oh, this is the thing that I'm afraid of. Nice. Nice. I, I, the only thing I would add here, I mean, again, I think all of us react to these things differently. Um, my personal experience being around mushrooms or LSD is very helpful to seeing a lot of the inner workings of what's going on inside of me. But I also feel very alone. I feel very by myself, even if I'm with a group of friends and they're laughing and they're joking and they're having fun, I'm inside learning things, finding value in it, but not happy about it. I'm, I'm not having a good time. Yeah. When I've, and I've had people report back in terms of MDMA or Molly, um, the experience has been pretty universal. Everybody seems to feel love and connection. Um, and again, you can use it in this rave environment, but most of the folks that I know that have reported back to me used it in m smaller groups, six or eight people. There was a pool or a hot tub nearby. Uh, it'd be people that you really knew and trusted. No, you know, you just knew that you could be safe around these folks Absolutely. and then people's ego and their walls would go down and they would start working on real stuff, uh, really facing things that 
they or their partner were never willing to face before. And, and many of them, as you guys pointed out earlier, many of them came away going like, Bill, it felt like 10 years of marriage therapy in a single night. And to yeah. me, that's to, to capture that is, you know, unheard of outside of this sort of space. And I think that's, man, that is such a rabbit hole. There is so much packed into like the relationship aspect of this, how we how we interact with each other, whether it's a romantic relationship or a platonic relationship. Um, you know, as I gained a bit of wisdom, I have actually started doing most of my practice alone, really, really um, uh, depriving myself of of stimulation, even even interacting with people that I love and trust. I know that what I need to do and have been doing for years is that deep work uh, within myself. And and I'm also coming out into a space where I feel like it's time to connect with people and to share uh, the experience and, and guide people uh, in this experience. But uh, this is such, I have to monitor myself because <laughs> this is such a rabbit hole as far as the experiences that people are having, the experiences that people are wanting to not be too quick to judge an experience as negative or positive, um, to sit open with it and understand that you experienced that for a reason. Um, yeah, I'll look to you guys to direct traffic from here. Cause I could go down a hundred rabbit holes just from this topic. <laughs> let's, let's go into, um, tips for people who are, you know, we're having some comments from viewers on, I, I'm really curious about this, but I don't have a I don't have any way to go about it. So maybe tips for people who are trying to cultivate an experience for the first time and especially how to avoid um, new cults, new religions, new a guide. I'm going to take you somewhere. And then as what happens in the ex-Mormon world all the freaking time, it seems like, which is I went to my another realm and you were my spiritual wife there and now we can have sex you know there's yeah. like that stuff going on oh, yeah. always that always seems to be a go-to move from mormon mormons and ex-mormons <laughs> yeah. and yeah. so um just kind of a guide for how to find someone that you know to, to cultivate the kind of experience that you want and maybe some red flags on what to avoid so that's that's a great point and and I've been really worried actually about this topic. I th- I've been reading a ton of self-help books and uh these new spiritual esque type books, pseudo spiritual blah blah. Uh, there's so much data and I think the volume and velocity of this data that is coming at us can be a source of anxiety and overwhelming and it leads us to looking for someone an external source of guidance. And for us that have grown up in organized religion, we can easily find ourselves at the feet of a guru. And uh, that's why when I, one of my leading statements that I tell people if they're going to come with me on, on an experience is I am no guru. I don't have your answers. And I'm going to just show you some tools and some things that seem to work for me and a lot of other people but we're going to walk this path together side by side. There is no leadership. There is no followers. We're together. And uh, much like the guy that's been on a really cool hike, I couldn't tell you all the ins and outs of the mountains and what all the vegetables and fruits and trees and all the things do or how it's best going to be for you or how you need to experience it. But I'll walk this path with you and I can kind of steer you away from some cliff edges and some sticky bushes, you know? Um, 
But we do have to be really cautious, especially, again, those of us that are exiting organized religion and making sure that we're not we're not joining or, you know, kind of forming or joining a cult. There's a, an author, Stephen Kotler, who has several books uh, that I would suggest that people read. And I wish I could remember the name of the book. I it's I, I think it might be Recapture the Rapture. And that's Jamie Wheel. Jamie Wheel is another great author um, that I think people should read. But between Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler, uh, they give you signs like here's what you look for uh, before entering into any of this kind of thing with a group or a guide. Uh, here's how to navigate the the minefield of you know uh, what people will eventually do with this. <laughs> um, we can't expect there to be several cults and several you know exclusive type groups and all that stuff to start appearing. Um, fortunately and unfortunately, there's a ton of data. If you can meter the data, exercise some self-discipline, which I have trouble with sometimes because there's so much data, right? If you can kind of enter into the data stream on the internet with how do I stay out of a cult? How do I meter myself, govern myself, create my own hedonic calendar? And then how do I source uh, or how do I experience this without getting in trouble? Um, I think that's where states like Oregon, especially, uh, are a safe bet. Uh, there's, you know, and people like myself that will guide and help. Um, there's a website, the vaults of Erowid that you can research any substance, the effects, the dosage, all kinds of feedback. So you can really enter into an experience knowing like, Hey, you know, I think I want to try the golden teacher strain and I want to try it in this setting in the mountains of Oregon or California. These I've spoken on the phone to these guides or instructors, and I I resonate with that with you know what they were saying. You know there there are several resources online and word of mouth, especially. Did I answer that? <laughs> yeah, and the the sources that you mentioned, uh, Bill and I are keeping track of so that we can list it. You know, for the people who are following on the podcast, the books that you recommend and just doing your own research and curating your own experience seems to be a pretty good um, guide for not getting caught up in a situation that you don't want to be in or that you regret or something like that. So, um, Bill, did you have a. Yeah, yeah. I was going to throw out. I mean, somebody here is asking. And so we'll hit this maybe right now. I once told somebody, I was having a conversation around psychedelic substances, and I said, look, mushrooms are safe. Nobody's ever died taking mushrooms. Like, And essentially, I'm, I was probably being too polemic. I was, I was just covering too much ground there. And somebody called me up the next day, and it was a dad. And he said, Bill, you ought to, you ought to be careful. He goes, my son took mushrooms, and he had a fine first experience. But after a second time of using it, his personality was deeply changed. And it took us about four years, his mother and I, about four years before we could get him back to being near functional where he was before. And with all of these substances, I'm always, you know, we were talking off the air. We all wanted to be really cautious that we, you know, everybody deals with different things. And for those folks who um, have borderline schizophrenia or worse, those folks who have bipolar or deep bouts of depression, these things are going to be a little more risky. And again, let's say mushrooms. I think it's probably half a percent or a percent of people who have an adverse reaction. And then an even smaller percentage that have like the the worst of nightmares, you know, in terms Mm -hmm. of how bad it could go. The reality is almost everyone could do these things and do them safely. But there are folks whose uh, mental state, stability, uh, whatever other kinds of challenges that they've got that are of the mind, you just want to take your time and be careful and make sure that that decision is your decision. I, 
I wouldn't want to tell anybody to do that and find out they had an adverse uh, experience with that. But for the most part, I think it's safe, except for a select few. And even with that, going back to something I was saying earlier, how many of us are being diagnosed with a condition when we are eating tons of grain? You should check out a book if you haven't already, Grain Brain. Uh, How many of us are eating processed sugar? All the junk. How many of us are eating junk? and developing uh, mental, chemical, emotional, you know, cognitive, all kinds of problems, and then going to a doctor and then saying, you know, getting diagnosed with something or not getting diagnosed with something, then maybe we venture into having a psychedelic experience and there's a problem. I wonder if for people that have a solid diagnosis that they believe to be true, I would then ask, have you changed your eating habits, meditation habits, grounding? Are you doing all these third dimensional, functional, you know, mechanical things to make sure that you're not being chemically altered by your food, water, drink, everything? Once you've done that, if you're still feeling all the symptoms of schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, all that, then I might suggest you you shy away or tiptoe uh, with psychedelics. Um the, the gentleman that mentioned his son, I'd love to know more about that. And I would love to know what they mean by returning to function. I do know that with certain religious practices, kundalini and whatnot, that people can have, you know, in the kundalini world, they call a kundalini awakening, and they find it extremely difficult to live in this world. The daily grind, the job, the kids, the, all the, what we might consider mundane or, or programmed systems that we have to live in they just want to retreat back to that that plane again another form of flow junkie um and i and i have actually dealt with that myself like i love the depths i love the connectedness the unity the the feeling of the divine flow in the path in the synchronistic path and and i find myself i have found myself over the years really wanting to exist there but learning that i have to create structure and this calendar still have to function here. And um, so I wonder, I wonder when people say it took us four years to getting back to functioning, if this, if this guy experienced something to that effect and didn't have a way to integrate the experience, didn't have someone there to say, hey, you know, here's how you can absorb that, dissect that and process that, but still maintain uh, a level of functionality in this world that doesn't have you being someone's ward for the rest of your life, you know? And it's kind of sad, right? Like they're also, the research so shows that it also heals some of these things. And so it's a real fine line of somebody making a decision to stay away from these things because it could make it worse. Um, and the other side of the coin is that maybe it heals you too. Cause there are folks who uh, I, I've talked to at least a half dozen people who had depression took medication, took mushrooms or LSD or some other psychotropic drug and ended up, you know, walking away from that and not needing their pills ever again. They were just right. healed. Right. And, and so there is this, you know, this, this, this is complex and it's messy and it's not, it's not a one size fits all. And I often try to always kind of um, hold up a sign that says, you know, you need to be called to the medicine. You, you shouldn't be messing with these things. If someone's trying to pressure you into them or right. Right. Um, you really should feel called to it and you should really make a decision for yourself. I find it's like going to the spiritual or mental or emotional spiritual gym. And 
you know, psilocybin is a supplement, much like a bodybuilder is going to take his protein, you know, and his shakes and his whatnot. The components of building a strong body are multifaceted, you know, proper diet, proper exercise, proper sleep and supplementation, right? And I think our emotional workout and our, our spiritual workouts much the same. If if we're feeding ourselves, for example, piles of junk, standard American diet, and then we're miserable, sad, depressed, this and that, anxiety and whatnot, and then we we have a a, a psychedelic experience, it it will likely show you some things. But I think what it's started to show me is that, hey, this is just a supplement. You still need to do the workout. You still need to eat right. You still need to live right. There's still things that we have to do in this physical plane in order to, to connect all of our all of ourselves together, to unify ourselves, uh, connect the spirit to the body, the thoughts, you know, to live in in, uh, in a harmonic fashion with all aspects of ourselves and our community. I, I've been noticing just as I in myself and as I do work with people, how often depression is like there's a difference between and I can feel it. Is this like a, I haven't been in the sunshine for a while, like just like the serotonin's just not going and I need to get back on track. And when I do my meditation and my sunshine and I eat right and all those things, then the depression goes down, right? I can feel that aspect of depression. But then there's another side of depression, which is like existential depression. Like I fundamentally don't know if life is worth living, like those spaces where my diet wasn't helping, like sunshine wasn't a good enough reason to choose to be alive. Right. And so what I loved about the experience is that I feel like it helped my depression on both sides. Like it helped to, you know, open up that serotonin stuff. But then it also helped to work through some of those deeper uh, thought loops where I was stuck, which was a probably a bigger cause of my depression than the, you know, sunshine and eat right stuff. And I remember waking up the day after where I felt like there was sunshine in my brain. And I was so angry that, you know, for 20 years, you know, I try to keep on top of my depression. It's something that I'm aware of, especially being like a deep philosophical thinker. I have to be aware of my mental state. And then for like $10, I feel like totally healed. And like how I was mad that like it wasn't available. I was mad that I had gone so long without having that tool because it helped more than any, you know, medication or anything like that, that I had tried, um, just deeply transformative. And for what, 10 bucks in a couple hours? Like I was so mad that why is this illegal? It'd be helpful for so many people, you know? Yeah. That's a, it's, it's such a multifaceted and deep subject. Um, that's, I'm pretty much dedicating my life. I mean, I'm in transition right now. Because I had one of these experiences like the the kid's son who they took him four years to kind of bring him back. I'm still there. <laughs> I'm in this state where I have felt a calling or direction uh, to live this every day. And I've had to really step back and go, now, are you just being a flow junkie again, Nick? But it's hard to come back from, I saw a message pop up on there. It's hard to come back to the real world and it, participate in the the normal job, the normal family, the normal, you know, just the this baseline, normal, safe and secure, comfortable, you know, comfortable world that we live in. It's been really hard for me to do that. And so this is where I arrive at, well, sounds pretty fantastical, but I wonder if there's a way that I can create something where 
I can live and I don't get me wrong. I don't want to be on mushrooms every single day, especially like some mega trip every day, microdose. Sure. But, and I want these experiences every day. Um, there's a lot of unpacking and processing that has to be done, but, um, and, it, and there's weight. I don't know about everybody, but for me, there's a weight that comes with these experiences that takes quite a while for me to process through, but at least it opens that gate. It opens the box. I can start unpacking, but there is a weight that comes with it for me. Um, but I, I know I've seen just in the comments and through talking with friends, my own self-analysis and hearing stories that once you enter into this, these experiences that, you know, you're, you're going to be on a different tra- trajectory. For me, that's been a deepened trajectory, sometimes a, a heavier trajectory. And uh, one that has me looking at everything, kind of like you were talking about, like, what's important here? You know, this existential crisis thing, you know, what what really do I need to be doing? How do I feed myself, clothe myself and provide for my family uh, while constantly maintaining contact uh, with these experiences and helping other people with these experiences? That's why sometimes I hear stories like what you were talking about, Bill. And uh, like, I wonder if that was a really deep calling to a really deep, you know, flow and energy. And, and yeah, maybe it did create a dysfunctional human being while he took four years to process. It's taken me a long time to process. I'm still processing. But I think these are the thresholds that we have to walk through in order to align ourselves with our true purpose. Yeah, that was the difference for me was was that you get to see the space between where you are and maybe a life that you can say this is a life that's fundamentally worth living. And for me, that's when my life changed was... I'm here. What I think a life fundamentally worth living is, is over here. And bridging that gap between those two spaces not only gave me something to do, right? Now I have wake up and I have something to do. It actually made my life fundamentally more worth living. And that does sometimes from the outside look like I'm less functional, like I don't care about name brand clothing or whatever the thing is or whatever the show is or whatever the whatever is. Um, because that's just to me, I just don't, I just fundamentally don't care. So it is trying to find a, you know, you're trying to straddle something. I want, I want to be in the world, but I want it to be a life that's fundamentally worth living. And that can start to show up in really unconventional ways, but it's your, you know, you got one life. I think that's where we see a kind of a new, a new thing coming out where you have psychedelic integration specialist how do we take this profound experience and then return to our normal lives because that side of the fence will always call you'll always be like man that was such a an amazing experience and how do i return to this and more so if i'm not necessarily satisfied here um how do i bridge the gap like you were just talking about and yeah maybe i'd be somewhat dysfunctional (laughs) For a little while, while I'm divorcing myself from, I want that new Porsche, I want that big mansion, I want all these things. And all of a sudden, you find that that's not really important, but it's been important for 30 years. It's like, whoa, what do I do with my, what do I do with myself? <laughs> well, you've been spoken to. And this is what I tell myself you've been spoken to, and you keep getting spoken to. And now it's time to do the work part, you know, and uh, that's what I've been doing for several years. But, you know, developing the hard skills, it's it's an interesting transition. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you it. And again, I'm these all the things we've talked about to various degrees have 
helped me in this facet of my mental state or my awareness. But at the end of the day, all of them collectively had me stop making excuses for my own bullshit. Like when, when I show up in a situation and I'm trying to manipulate the people in the world around me, it would show up in very, um, I knew what was going on, but I wasn't being honest about it. And I would manipulate my wife or my kids or get the world to be the way I wanted it to be. And what these things did was they had me realize that all of this was inside. It was all internal going on. And I like, um, came to this moment where I said, like, I really, as you guys are pointing out, I really want to show up in the world better. I really want to be my best self. And so, you know, if you were to sit down with my wife and say, hey, what's what was Bill 10 years ago and what is Bill today? She would put in a night and day difference. And it really is these, these conscious altering tools that um, paved the way for me. We had a conversation with Phil McLemore. He's kind of a, kind of a Buddhist uh, type of approach. And Buddhism is by the letter of the law in Buddhism, it's often saying like, don't take these substances, but I don't believe that. I think they are in a sense, a shortcut, right? You mentioned that at the beginning, they're, they're in a sense, a shortcut, but so what for folks who have never had an experience with an altered awareness, use the shortcut. If you feel prompted to do so, like, you know, again, it doesn't have to be three hours of meditation or half hour meditation for six months on end. Like here's a quick moment to jump into that headspace and you're going to learn things from it. And there's amazing stories all throughout man's history. Stealing fire. Uh, the book talks about, you know, the Prometheans and the, the story of Prometheus. And you have everything from ancient Egypt, Sumerians, Grecians, Romans, all of these cultures, these really advanced cultures that had these exclusive organizations that had their form of uh, psychedelic. And um, I think it's, is it Greece? That has the story. They had a an elixir that they made that granted all the drinkers of this elixir uh, the knowledge of the gods, right? And uh, you know, to divulge or to especially steal uh, this recipe meant death. And uh, so, with that in my mind, it with all the all the reading that I've done with of religions and and God, because I do have this space for God in my head. I'm always considering what I'm doing, I have to ask myself, why am I stealing fire? Am I actually doing something uh, that my creator wants me to do? And uh, I have to enter into the space very humbly and asking for permission and forgiveness at the same time. Um, If I'm doing something that's stealing fire, um, you know, to forgive me for that. But what I'm, what I'm getting is that there is real power in this and through the processes uh, the meditations, the 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 food, the dieting, the the lifestyle. If this becomes a lifestyle, and if you're using psychedelics as part of your lifestyle, uh, that you will open up could be the next iteration of human consciousness. You know, you, we tilt the scales in a way that we completely change how we interact and how we behave here on the planet. Seems like we could probably use that. Um, at the same time, I walk now very cautiously uh, to make sure that what I'm accessing is meant for me. That when I, you know, there's another book, uh, the, uh, the Rise of Superman and Becoming Supernatural. Those are two great books uh, that talk about, I don't know, I hate to use the word evolution because I don't necessarily believe it as it's taught, but our advancement and adaptation, epigenetic signaling and all that stuff. I do believe that we are at a point in humanity that we could really affect some pretty intense change, just trying to make sure that the change that I'm helping generate 
is uh, a positive one. So let's talk about um, like what are the actual real legal concerns to be aware of? Like, because there's sometimes a difference between like what's on the books and like what's really what are what people are really prosecuting. And so as uh, you know, people listening, they may try to travel somewhere or they may try to. I know there's people like on Etsy who are selling like grow your own kind of things. Um, when you're digging into the space and you're, you know, you don't have maybe a guide of what are the actual real legal concerns to be aware of? Well, it's state by state, right? The severity of the punishment, I think, is what we're really talking about. Um, you know, places like Oregon have decriminalized and there's a panel of doctors, uh, research scientists and, and uh, people of the like that are engaging in uh mushrooms, uh, psilocybin as a psychotherapy. Um, everything's really vague. One of my friends is a doctor and uh, we're partnering uh, to do something of, of a retreat and the laws are really pretty vague. <laughs> so in Oregon, from what I've heard real world is that, you know, if you get in trouble or get caught with the stuff, that typically nothing comes of it. It's decriminalized up to a certain amount, cannabis and mushrooms and all the different drugs. Um, second, you cross the border into Idaho, it's a different experience. Still probably a misdemeanor citation, no jail time, but you're now, you know, have this possession of a controlled substance thing on your record and you've had to pay a fine and, you know, maybe you're on unsupervised probation for a year. Um, I do think that's changing, especially in states like Washington, Oregon, California, different places like that. But, you know, there is just inherent risk if you're trying to source the stuff. Um, there are several places that you can go online and buy spore packets and, and propagate your own. But, you know, now you're manufacturing. <laughs> so that's a problem um, if you're caught. The safest way would be to travel to one of these states, have your experience in one of those states. Otherwise, you're dealing with black market. So talk to us about, I'm really excited for kind of how you have decided to integrate kind of these two parts of you, this, you know, real world, have to make money part of you and this really expansive part of you. And I am just, I would love to hear more about your plans for what you, you know, if you had a billion dollars, what would you build in Oregon and what, and what for, and how can we support you in this thing that you're trying to build? So, um, I'm going to try to be short with this one, or at least not a five-hour dissertation on what I'm doing. <laughs> it's, it's kind of dynamic. Um, I've been in the in the construction world and in the science end of construction uh, for 20 years, and I've learned all kinds of really interesting things about materials and ways to build things. And so basically, in a nutshell, what I have started really seeing clearly is that if I can acquire a mountain ranch, one like I just went and looked at... Uh, that's big enough to create uh, a bit of a community retreat experience. It's a hybrid experience where I design and build sustainable housing and people can choose to live there. They can choose to Airbnb and rent there. Uh, but overall, the, the function of this uh, community or this retreat is to allow people the experience, a full integration experience where you are eating good organic heirloom. You are living in structures that are designed with sacred geometry and all these really amazing components and 
no toxic uh, chemicals and blocking out frequencies and all, you know, they're very clean space structures. Um, you are in the mountains surrounded by the smells and the sounds and the, you know, the, the experience just of being by water and being connected barefoot to the ground um, all the while experiencing all, uh, uh, you know, a myriad of, of tools all at the same time. You're not just using psilocybin. You're, you've got psilocybin with breath work, with meditations in the morning, with, you know, so on, so on, so on. Just it's the full spectrum experience is what I'm creating. And you can be there for a weekend or a year. There's a, an interesting group of mega billionaires that have purchased a mountain in Utah and uh, I believe they call themselves the Summit Group or Summit. The place is called Summit. Um, but it's an experimental community like this. It's not about your mega million dollar mansions. It's about sustainable living uh, group flow projects. You'll find information about this through the uh, Flow Genome Project. Um, but it's the same type of people that developed Burning Man and, you know, the Google guys that developed the Burning Man and the, the offshoot communities. And eventually what I want to create here in Oregon is, is a spot that's kind of a sister community um, that focuses more on the off-grid, super clean space, uh, psychedelic-assisted uh, therapies and experiences. And that is what I'm working on as far as my transition, you know, having to put food in my mouth still, but living in this world, that's been my solution is I can can make a little bit of money and feed myself and clothe myself while immersed in this environment and helping people every day. Yeah. And I've as seen you work in, yeah. yeah, I've seen you work in yeah. that space and it would be amazing if you could make a living doing what you were doing. You know, I've seen you do breath work with people because they, um, there was resistance in their body and they didn't, their body didn't want to go on this journey. It felt really vulnerable to do with people. And so you would do breath work with them. You know, I've seen you, um, you know, there was a woman who had to go through some trauma with, with, uh, miscarriages and just kind of like gave, like her body just kind of wanted to give birth on the floor, you know, it just wanted to finish that process. And you kind of held her body while she did that. And it was really beautiful to see you work in that space and how, how priceless it really is for some of these people to say like that was deeply transformational and That's I've heard you me. talk also about it. Yeah. Hopefully for you too. And then to have doctors involved, to have therapists involved, like, Hey, come for a week for just women for trauma of this nature yeah. or whatever. Um, gosh, I just can't even imagine how deeply transformational that could be. If we could, you know, if, if, if we can, make it go. But gosh, it would just be so life-changing for so many people. Yeah. I, and I think it's necessary. And part of why I'm getting into this is I really do want to be one of the places that you can go without worrying about, you know, falling into the clutches of a cult, you know, where we do have doctors, you know, on site, you know, and create a, just create a really safe space for people. Um, I've thought that I might be a good fit for something like this because I've lived such a, a wild life and seen so many things, been around the world, done some really crazy stuff with some crazy people, um, good and bad, that I feel like I can create a very safe space for anyone to experience anything that they need. You're not going to weird me out. You're not going to scare me off. And I'll go there with you. You know, there's the therapist that will 
sit on the sidelines and, and guide you that way. And I'll do that too. But then there's the ones that'll go in with you, you know, it's like, Hey, you want to, uh, hero dose and really, really get way out and away from everything that's keeping you in prison. <laughs> you know, I'll go out in the deep end with you. And, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's really my solution to be able to exist in this world as it is, but also create a reality uh, for myself and other people to just keep the process going. This thing's building momentum. The dam's got cracks in it and the floodwaters are about to, you know, wash around the world. And people all over the planet are getting, are getting illuminated, I guess, you know, inspired. And, and there's a, a deep part of us that are all connected and kind of coming together on these types of projects. Bill, would you like, you know, a couple of years from now, Nick's got something up and running. You take the entire cast of like the Mormon discussion, you know, podcast crew, everybody, and we all go up together for a week. I mean, could you imagine how fun that would be? I'm up for a five gram heroes dose. Let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, let's yeah. do it. <laughs> let's do it. I, uh, and, and when you talk about set and setting, you know, I mean, the safety and security and comfort of you know, this place I went and looked at, it was 350 acres. And I was just blown away about how big that felt in the mountain. If you look at 350 acres of farmland, it doesn't seem that big. But when you are in the mountains on a, on a piece of land that's got rivers and mountain, the, the hills and meadows and all this dynamic topography, I'm like, gosh, you know, I could walk a group along this river barefoot, slowly talking and doing all the things that we're doing to prep ourselves, arrive at the, the campfire site in our little hemp cottage and everybody's in their headspace and you don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to pick my kids up tomorrow. I don't have to worry about interacting with a couple of hikers or campers that are like, what in the hell is wrong with that person? You know, it's just this beautiful little capsule of space that we could exist in and yeah a week long with all of you guys and and having multiple types of experiences in that week you know and yeah that's that's dreamland stuff for sure so i'm hoping one of the reasons i wanted to do this podcast is uh mormons are an industrious people sometimes there's mormons who have deep pockets and it's interesting i think you know this bill of of there's certain like major players in in Mormonism, post-Mormonism, ex-Mormonism, and each one of them have like a couple of like deep pocket people that are supporting that work. And so I just wanted to get this out there that, you know, if this sounds like something you'd be interested in experiencing or even supporting, uh, maybe contact me and I'll, because I don't want to have your information out there, Nick. So maybe contact me and I can get you in contact with Nick and see if we can get this available to more people because it's been... I've, I've only done, I have never been drunk. I don't really smoke weed. I don't, I have a lot of addiction in my family. Um, I have a heroin addict brother. I've just like never, it's never been my thing. Um, but the couple of, you know, mushroom experiences I have had have been deeply transformational. And I would just love to see it be available for more people. So if that Absolutely. is up your alley, let me know so I can get you in contact with Nick. And uh, just to throw out to the, the listeners and viewers, um, you mentioned a bunch of books, Nick. I just want to mention three really quick, which is uh, for the historical use of these kinds of drugs within kind of religious paradigms, The Immortality Key by Brian Mirror Rescue. And then uh, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, which I think he did such a good job of making it very secular in layman terms. 
Here's what's going on. And then uh, Carl Hart released a book a couple of years ago, Drug Use for Grownups. And uh, I think those three books together really give you a feel of uh, both time and space, how these things have been used and how they can be used. Yeah, absolutely. Any other thoughts, Britt? Nope, that was it for me. I just, um, I'm excited that Nick is kind of in my circle and I'm sure that we'll have more experiences in the future. And uh, I'm just really excited for this project that he has. And I, I hope that, I hope that it can come about because uh, I've, I've just seen people's lives really change. Like they're going on a certain trajectory and they really just change the trajectory of their mm. life in a better way. And, and gosh, if that isn't something that people need. So um, yeah, I, there was a lot, it was a long time between kind of the day I was curious about psilocybin and connection to spirituality. Cause I'm a super spiritual person to when I was able to find people that I trusted, um, you know, people who weren't just escaping, but people like Nick who, you know, you'll, you'll do things where you'll fast before you go into an experience, you know, you're including your body and your thoughts and your mind and your spirituality and safely. And I'll hold your hand. I'm not going to lead you anywhere. And it wasn't until I found that safe space that I felt comfortable going into an experience. And so I, I hope that people, um, are open to it and and can find those people to make those big shifts sometimes that we need to have our lives be what they could be. Absolutely. Everybody's invited. Everybody come to Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right. That's it for me. Anything left for you, Bill? No, this is a great conversation. I think folks who are deconstructing religious dogma and paradigms they're really nervous they, they want to see if these things are going to be useful and they're really nervous about figuring out what is and what isn't and i just hope that the conversation today was helpful to those folks um it really is again we i think we've said it the whole time it really is something that for most people uh, life-changing and uh, gives them an experience to start building a new perception and a new life after and it certainly uh, to various degrees with various things has been that way for me. So thank you guys for uh, the time today. It's just awesome. Thank I you. Would like to mention, it. Yeah. I've never met anyone in my life that says, I wish I hadn't done this. Mm. Yeah. No, me that's either. interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. Anyway, that's yeah. all I got. Hope I was helpful. <laughs> yeah. yeah we have a lot of questions about, about this stuff as people are, are exploring post-religion. So yeah, hope it, hope it was helpful for people. And we just thank you so much for your time and your expertise and being willing to to talk about it openly, even though it's, it's kind of a tough gray area as far as it the is. law. So a little taboo still, huh? Yeah. A little bit, so, but. Oregon's working quickly on by 2023. Um, the documents say by early 2023, we are going to have definitive laws, regulations. As of right now, the governing bodies are just kind of turning a blind eye to those of us that are helping folks out in the hills and um, they've decriminalized. So there's some security in that. Um, I, do, I do think 50 years from now, can I, I just can't imagine with, 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 with the studies that are coming out specifically on PTSD and depression, yeah. I just imagine that 50 years from now, like it's very common for someone in my life to say, I'm going to go to Sedona and I'm going to go for a week and I'm going to do a spa vacation. Right. That's very common. Yeah. And I feel like 50 years from now, it'll be very common for someone to say, I'm going to go to Oregon. I just need to get into a better headspace and have this be part of therapy. Right. I just, I, I can't imagine with the studies 
that that with yeah just just with the solid evidence that's coming out especially from like john hopkins and stuff like that i just can't imagine that that this will not be somehow normalized in the future and i i hope you're a part of that i think it's talking i think we're talking five ten years honestly mm. there's a massive global movement this direction it's yeah i think it's going to be quick yeah. yeah and most of these things are way safer than the opiates that people have a prescription for i mean they're these may be better tools, even though for years we were told these would do the worst things to you. The reality is that's just not true. Um, there are some risks, but they are minimal. And these things seem to be really helping people. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no denying that at this point. I think yeah. the, the dam's going to break. The information and all the access is coming. And I'll definitely be a part of it. So, Love it. Thank, thank you so much for your time. We so appreciate it. Thank Have you. a great day, Nick. Hey, you too. Bye. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.